millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is a video game called Dredge. And, oh, this is this is going to be so much fun to talk things through. I am actually going to pull in a movie as well that I've also seen recently. I'm definitely in a nautical theme. What's this going to do? This is going to take us to one of humanity's greatest fears. And actually, we're going to reintroduce somebody we talked about a while ago, and that is H.P. Lovecraft. But only a little bit and a slight readjustment. Oh, I, I can't wait to get on with this one, so I will. Right, so if you don't know, Dredge is a video game that came out in 2023 by the extremely talented New Zealand company and, and sort of producers Black Salt Games. Now, it's weird, because New Zealand's going to crop up a fair bit in this. Or, well, a bit, at least. So, we've got this New Zealand company creating this game, Dredge. And you might be thinking, hang on, how's he going to fit all this stuff together? So, Dredge is one of those rarest of rare things. It's a game you can buy, and there aren't any bolt-ons on it. It's not one of these freemium games where you have to play it every day, or you're basically going to have to pay a fiver every time you play it just to try and win, or something like that, and you're against everybody else on the internet. Oh god, I hate freemium. No, it's not that. This is a single-player game. You pay your money, you get your game, you play it the way you want to. Obviously, there are certain things that are going to work for you and not work for you, but yeah, that's the thing. Now, the sheer genius of Dredge is its twofold nature. On the one hand, it's almost like a mini-game that you get in other games. I cannot remember how many, particularly role-play games, there you off being the brave chosen one warrior trying to take down the ultimate evil, but there are all these side missions and you can goof around and do other things. And the amount of times where if you can buy a fishing rod and stand next to a river, you can go fishing. It could be in a Pokemon game. It could be in a Fable game. It could be in so many different Zelda games. So it's just a thing that happens a lot in role-play games, be they European or JRPG. And obviously, because this is not the main point of that game, whatever it may be, 
They are of varying quality, but sometimes they can be surprisingly in-depth and kind of you start getting horribly distracted going, I want to catch all the fish. I mean, even in Red Dead Redemption 2, there is fishing options as well, even though you're trying to be an outlaw cowboy. Dredge really cranks that up again. And as the name implies, you're going to be dredging the seas and you're going to be looking for stuff in the ocean. And on the one hand, you basically have this uh, little ramshackle ship and it's going to be going around the various different islands and you can basically fish in different areas, pick up different types of fish, bring them back, earn some money, upgrade your boat. It's a sort of nice little circle of a gameplay loop that works very well. And if that's all it was, you could probably potentially buy it on your iPhone or whatever and people go, oh, it's fun. But what happens in the game is people do keep warning you, you don't want to go out at night. And indeed, nighttime on the sea is substantially dangerous. And it's kind of set in, it's, it's not set in a specific year. But let's say it's like 1920s, 1930s. So this is pre-sonar, pre-radar. And, you know, you don't really have radio and stuff like that. And so, you know, you also sometimes dredge up some rather funny looking fish. But it's okay, I'll go back and sort of try and sell them. Some people want you to go out a little bit further and they might give you a bonus if you can pick up a certain piece of loot. And this is all very normal in a video game. And just on its own, what I'm describing there is a game. But if you go out at night, things start getting pretty weird and pretty creepy really quickly. You will start getting strange mists you're basically you'll have a kind of sanity monitor where you can slowly go more and more insane your boat gets attacked by strange wraith-like things sometimes there is weird stuff lurking in the water beneath you and if things get too much too quickly your boat gets destroyed and you get sent back to the like the, the nearest fishing village something like that so there's suddenly this whole other element to it can you be brave enough to deal with the stuff that lurks in the water and suddenly you realize dredge has kind of a, another meaning to it and so it's it's just a good refreshingly different actual game where people have put love into it if you like video games you can buy it on switch you can buy it on steam you can buy it on the PS5, you can buy it on Xbox, etc. Basically, wherever you can buy games, you can buy Dredge. And it's not going to be the most expensive video game out there. This is not a AAA game. But you know what? Unlike a lot of AAA games, this actually, like I say, has some originality to it. And it's not a first-person shooter. And it's not got a whole sort of store inside of it with loot boxes and other things. It's just, oh, even though it's a sort of very tense kind of weird game there's a little part of me thinking it's like slipping into a warm bath like oh this is why i used to enjoy playing video games so huge huge respect and shout out to black salt games well done you but then i want to strangely tie this in and i think you'll see the connection when i talk about a movie called underwater 
Now, I was first made aware of this about six months ago when I saw somebody on Twitter talking about it going, oh, it's got this, this, and this. Who wouldn't want to see that? And it's like, really? Never even heard of it. And so did a bit of digging around. It's like, oh, it stars Kristen Stewart, and I'm not a huge fan of hers. I don't think she has a great acting range. It's like, mm -hmm. never heard of it. Is this low budget or whatever? And then... Again, as I've mentioned in the past, I do a lot of traveling in my job, and it's like, oh, I'll download it. What's the worst that can happen? It might just be 90 minutes of, you know, distracting entertainment. I was hooked. This thing spends no time messing about. Basically, in the first scene, everything goes wrong, and after that, you just follow Christian Stewart through one tense, intense encounter after another. It's, oh, it's like speed, only underwater, as it says. So it's, to give you an idea of what the setup basically is, there is a drill rig that's down in the bottom of the Marianas Trench. It's, you know, deepest part of the deepest part of the ocean. And they're basically drilling, they're trying to find minerals and stuff like that. It's an absolutely huge drill rig operation, so it's set slightly in the future. You know, it's not like people have got hoverboards and stuff like that, but you know, it's light science fiction, if you like, and obviously nobody is drilling in the Marianas Trench. And as I say, everything goes very wrong very quickly. And it's just, it's just really well done. If I have a criticism, it's only one. It's quite derivative. Have you seen Aliens? Have you seen The Thing? Then you've kind of seen this movie. Have you seen The Abyss? If you sort of smash those three movies together, you've got Underwater. But you know what? Those are three really good films. And I kind of know every beat in those films off by heart. So instead, ta-da, here it is. It's a very taut and very short movie, but it's very, very light on description. There is a little bit at one point where it starts hinting at other things. And I don't want to give away you know, what happens towards the end either. But like I say, if you've seen those sorts of movies, it's like you're going to love this with sort of grimy, Blade Runner-y, kind of alien aesthetic to it particularly their diving suits you don't need diving suits kind of well i guess you do need diving suits like that because of course they're under massive amounts of pressure and so it is that kind of submarine -y type movie in the sense that just the creaking of the hull reminds you that any second the bolts could explode in your face and you'll be sort of crushed by the pressures of the of the depths so if this sounds like a good movie I really enjoyed it. I, I I thoroughly recommend it. I'm not going to say, like I say, it's the most original movie ever, and it does lean heavily on H.P. Lovecraft to the point where they even have a crafty little image drawn by him originally, just in the corner of a piece of paper, just to sort of like make a little connection there for the nerds out there like me. It's like, ooh, look at that. And so, yes, you can watch it now for free on Disney+. Plus. So why? Why has this rather taut little thriller with, you know, Christian Stewart, she can put bums on seats. She's, you know, a popular actress. Why don't you know anything about this? And the answer is, it was kind of a victim of circumstance. Two unrelated, really bad things, neither of which the filmmakers could possibly know anything about. And the other great thing about Christian Stewart is she clearly put her heart and soul into this. It very much hangs off her. It's a very physical role. And she actually basically shaved her head. She's got like a grade one or two haircut in sort of like, which is bleach blonde as well. She kind of looks bald. 
but it's certainly not a romantic role or indeed a role about a lot of sort of beauty and pretty and I get the feeling she probably spent a large amount of the shoot up to her neck in water which probably wasn't the most fun but she thought she was making a good film and she did she did make a good film I think this is the best thing I've ever seen her in but that's partly because I can't stand the Twilight movies but anyway you get the idea if what I've just said sounds good go for it but why were there these problems well first of all this was made by Fox and it just happened to be the last film made by Fox before it was bought by Disney so if you like Disney inherited a movie that they never asked for didn't know how to market and didn't want and so this is going back a few years I think it was actually filmed in 2017 but it finally got a release in early 2020 at a time when things were shutting down it is worth remembering that onwards the the pixar movie that came out just before covid and it's one of the lowest grossing pixar movies ever in the cinemas because of covid okay onwards a fun film i'm not saying it's the best pixar movie but it doesn't deserve to be that lowly rated it's a lot better than the good dinosaur for example or any of the cars films it's a fun film but you know I don't want to die of a respiratory illness, so I'm not going to go to the cinemas. And oh yeah, the government's kind of locked us in our homes anyway. We can only go to the supermarket and that's about it. So I'm not going to be allowed to go and see a movie in the cinema. One thing I did like about late 2020, because no films were coming out then, people started releasing old classic movies in the cinema. I got to show my eldest son Akira in the cinema and it was sensational and I got to take the whole family to see the original Rocky we're all Rocky fans and, and it was lovely to see the f I've never seen Rocky on the big screen I suddenly realized how many knives does that man have in his home seriously watch it on HD and count the amount of knives in the background stuff like that he even hangs his coat on a machete stuck on the wall now I noticed that one before but there's loads more of them and there's loads of beer cans everywhere He's not living his best life in that movie, is all I'm going to say. But anyway, with Underwater, it's a film nobody really heard about. Disney was giving it no love in terms of its marketing or PR. So that it completely slipped through the net. <laughs> Ironic. I wasn't planning on going there, but that's a good wordplay with Dredge and Underwater and stuff like that. But you get the idea. So it's on Disney Plus right now. If you've got Disney Plus... I can think of worse ways to spend, it's, I think it's about an hour and 40 minutes. Again, it's this rare modern movie. It's like, we're not going to waste your time. We're just going to tell the story we're here to tell and we're out. Done. End. Really cracking film. But of course, all of this works on a kind of subconscious level for us. My wife's worst fear. I'm sure she wants me to share this with you all. All these strangers on the interwebs but I bet you can relate to it. Her worst fear is being left alone in the dark, floating on the middle of the ocean. And I know exactly what she means. That's not my worst fear for the record, but it's certainly up there. That wouldn't be considered a fun Saturday if I was floating in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean at nighttime on a little dinghy, knowing that there's a mile of water underneath me and anything could be swimming past me that a shark could attack me or something like that. Of course, the statistical chances of being attacked in the middle of the ocean by a thing is extraordinarily rare. But, yeah, we have a strange relationship with the sea because on the one hand, it gives us fish and things like that. We can move things across and move faster before the age of, like, locomotives and 
the automobile. You know, it, it, people sort of like talk about how rivers and, and oceans or seas were kind of barriers, but actually in a way I could send a message faster across somewhere like the English Channel than I could from Dover to, let's say, Nottingham, because the ships just simply move faster or I could move more equipment that way, etc. So it's a life giver. The amount of ancient settlements that were also ports or on the coast because it was just a different way to get a different form of nutrients and things like that. And so that's true, but also at the same time, it's mysterious and different. And a little bit like the great thing about underwater is it could have been, most of it could have been set on a space station and the plot would have been the same in the sense that if that hull blows, we get sucked out into space and we die. But, you know, if that hull blows, we the water rushes in and we die. Either way, it's the same thing. We're not designed to live in the bottom of the ocean. We're not designed to live in space. And therefore, it's this constant hostile threat. It's pointed out, I'm pretty sure it's pointed out in Dredge. I, I can't remember. I, this is the thing. Did I pick it up from Dredge? Did I pick it up from underwater? Did I pick it up from somewhere else? But there's this thing about how if you go back 150 years, and maybe it's still true in some fishing communities, fishermen don't learn how to swim. And the reason for that is if they are swept overboard and they're in the middle of the North Sea or the North Atlantic, it gives them false hope that they know how to swim. They'll try and swim back to the ship and the ship may not be able to see them in the middle of a storm at night or something like that. So it's just better to just drown quickly than to sort of flail around for 10 minutes and basically delaying the absolute crushing inevitability of you're going to die in the water. Oh, that just sends a shiver down my spine. I don't know about you. Dredge, even though it's this kind of cutish game, doesn't have the, the best graphics in the world, but it doesn't need to. It starts playing on these very base human emotions. And like I say, the slightly sinister, there's something off about some of the people that you're talking to and the sort of the artwork used for them. It's like, mm, yeah, okay, what's going on there? Which again brings us to the world of H.P. Lovecraft. So I mentioned it, I did a whole episode on H.P. Lovecraft and I sort of like talked about various different influences he had and I talked about how racist he was. And all of these things, by the way, are true. Um, however, I did, I've recently done a podcast episode on basically a documentary that I saw about the making of Platoon. And about the same time, I dug out a documentary about the life and times of H.P. Lovecraft because I knew quite a lot about his work and I kind of knew what happened next, but I didn't know that much about the man. Although apart from the fact that he was quite racist and quite sort of like locked in. And what's interesting about him is, like a lot of human beings, he's just this colossal bag of contradictions. Now, he was, it's very interesting, they use the term in the documentary, which is obviously all about him, they don't use the word racist, they use the word xenophobic, which is another, it's the fancy word for racist. But if you like, it, it wasn't so much race, it was about immigrants. And they showed various caricatures of like in the early... 1900s of how immigrants coming into America or other countries were kind of portrayed. You know, it was the worst racial stereotypes, but they were very often associated with like vermin and filth and squalor and stuff like that. And it's like, well, yeah, that's why these people are immigrating. But, uh, you know, the, their poorness shouldn't be something that we should be fundamentally scared of. And so, in a way, Lovecraft was... 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Basically a reflection of that. But what I found really, in, and there is no excuse to this, okay? Like I say, his overtly racist poetry, no, no, sir. No, absolutely not. But at the same time, what I found interesting, fascinating, in fact, is how his mother was so abusive towards him. You know, to the point where he's a kind of, I'm not going to say he's a good-looking guy. He's a very average-looking guy. He's very tall for his time. He's awkward-looking. You probably would spot him in a crowd, but that's about it. Whereas what I found fascinating is his mother convinced him that he was hideous, that he was sort of, you know, deformed almost in a way, that he was bad to look at. And so, in a way, he kind of didn't mind that because he was, like I say, a quiet child and he just sort of liked, liked being upstairs, writing his stories and reading his books. And that's kind of what the adult man was like. So, weirdly, and that's probably not the only time this is ever going to happen in history, while he did hate other races, he did hate immigrants, he was xenophobic and racist. At the same time, probably the person he hated, his mo hated the most was himself. The other weird thing is he ended up marrying a Jewish woman. So that's, all, that's kind of counter to everything. And she was really patient with him, but they eventually drifted apart and, you know, he just went back to his crazy way. She actually was a pretty good influence on him for a while, but wasn't to be, sadly. And then he sort of like, he died in his early 40s, you know, kind of a sort of un, undiscovered. I mean, basically everything he wrote for was for silly little a comic or sort of like short story magazines and things like that or comic type things. And therefore, he hadn't been given the literary credit that he actually deserved. It's one of these people where you might want to separate the art from the artist. But what Lovecraft created was this new concept of the sort of cosmic horror, which both Underwater and Dredge lean into. This idea of the unexplainable horror. The sort of, the th you know, there have been other horror things, for example, Dracula, you know, by Bram Stoker. And which is short for Abraham. It took me years to find out what Bra. I thought it was just a first name. It's like, oh no, it's Abraham Stoker. All right, cool. 
anyway but you know it's like okay you've actually got a monster to fight it's the same thing with a werewolf or same thing with ghost stories there's a specific entity and it's out to get you it's malevolent but the idea of the cosmic horror elements is these things are so incredibly old and incredibly powerful humanity's irrelevant to them it's not that these things are evil but they'll they'll snuff out humanity the same way we might walk on an ant and not even think about it and and that sort of idea and and it came to sort of like trying to describe the creatures rather than just sort of saying oh you know it's humanoid with a big horn on its head and it's got fangs you know which every other horror writer in history had done here it was a case of they can't be described the vocabulary hasn't been created so it's sort of concepts like a gibbering madness a foul stench you know eyes in the darkness kind of thing and that's the best we can do to describe them to the point where the actual onlooker goes mad or just disappears from the story it's an incredibly new and distasteful and i mean that in a good way it's kind of shocking and it's twisted and it's creepy and that's exactly what people were kind of looking for in the early 20th century and then it's influenced everything onwards you know into video games in the 21st century like literally the idea of this kind of sanity counter you know the idea of madness as an affliction has appeared in lots of different video games which has led to people saying madness is not an affliction and it's like there are many different times of neurodiversity and we shouldn't be scared about it it's not something that should be seen as evil or anything like that 100 percent, i agree with that i get that um, but you can absolutely see as an idea in a video game that it's not necessarily about being killed. It's about being able to keep cohesive thoughts together before I lose my mind. It's an interesting idea, and I don't think people are seriously saying, I'm going to take that from a video game, and I'm going to play that to people I, that I interact with day to day. If you do, for the record, you're a terrible human being. I'm, I'm just putting that out there. So... What we've got here then with the likes of Underwater and Dredge is, and also Lovecraft, is one of them, oh, probably the most scary thing out there, isn't the most slavering of beasties. It isn't the biggest of teeth or horns or claws. It's the unknowable nature of things. It's things we don't know. As the phrase goes, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. But I would add that fear is pretty damn scary. So that's why it's so potent as a weapon, if you like, to be used by various literary people. And, you know, Lovecraft just influenced pretty much every other writer, horror writer, after him. To the point where you get something like Stephen King with It. It starts off as a clown in a sewer. That's an unusual place for a clown. They're creepy anyway, but that's definitely not where they should be. And by the end, you literally got cosmic turtles sort of like defending the solar system. I mean, that's absolutely H.P. Lovecraft, but with kids in it. So, yeah, that's absolutely a thing. And for a while, you get Guillermo del Toro, who's trying to do one of his signature stories, The Mountains of Madness, with potentially Tom Cruise. And he even created some proof of concept animatics to show you the sort of the slithering horrible nasty gibbering madness of it all and he actually released those on social media not that long ago actually to say this is what i had in mind and they're all they're creepy and they're very much like the thing but i'm going to say it doesn't matter how weird and bizarre you make it on screen that's not really lovecraft because the whole point is you couldn't describe it so i'm telling you right now 
To anybody listening to this with special effects abilities, if you ever want to create a truly Lovecraftian thing, what I really recommend is, by all means, create a, perhaps a CGI monster with tentacles everywhere and stuff like that. Yes, that works, but then what you want to do is add other layers of special effects. Like, for example, it's only in-frame every other frame, if you like. So it's only there half the time. And maybe you put in constant motion blur around it. So basically, just you as a viewer watching it on the screen, it's not just sitting there, but it's kind of playing around in front of your eyes. And it's it's almost uncomfortable to look at. It's like that wobble cam that you can get if people are sort of running down a street in like another horror movie and everything's wobbling around. It can kind of give you a bit of motion sickness. If you can instill that element of motion sickness, and also the other thing, as I mentioned, I did a whole episode specifically on horror, about how they'll literally put in two different scores. One of them is like scary music with like strings and things like that and jump scares and etc. But there's a different score, which is at an audio level below our listening. So in other words, a part of us can sense that there's other noise that we're not quite getting, we're not quite understanding. And that's kind of distressing to us because we can't quite sense it, but we know it's there. Put in that kind of sound, also put in that kind of motion blur and like maybe every other frame, and then also have a really good CGI beastie there with all the tentacles and slime and maybe some mist thrown in there as well. And I think you then got something Lovecraftian, which would genuinely freak you out to see on the screen. But sorry, prosthetics don't quite cut it. But this now allows us to go into the other elements, the other forms of fear that have been historically recorded around the world of the sea. So the first person I'm going to start with, which you might think is an unusual choice, is Aristotle. You know, great Greek philosopher, round about 400 BC, give or take, classical Greek stuff. What's he got to do with any of this? Well, he literally writes about a kind of giant squid. Then I'm going to jump to Pliny the Elder, another famous kind of natural philosopher or scientist, as we'd now call him. And in, he's in the first century AD, so I basically skip forward about 500 years, and he also kind of describes giant beasts in the sea. Of course, one of the most famous ones that even kids hear about, even irrespective of whether you're Christian or not, is Jonah and the whale. That's in the Bible. That's actually predates the likes of Aristotle. So this kind of stuff, interestingly, they're all describing basically the Mediterranean Sea there, but they're all describing something unusual, something hard for human beings to grab as a concept lurking in the depths. Now, for the record, if you actually look at the very first stories of Jonah in the original Hebrew, then what's interesting about that is it's not described as a whale. It's described as a great fish. Now, of course, that could be because they didn't know that whales weren't fish, but also it could be describing almost anything. And, and that's the thing. It, it could be a great white shark. It could be a whale shark. Obviously, the whole story itself is likely to be allegorical, although there was an instance only a few years ago where a diver was actually grabbed, obviously by accident, by a sperm whale, and for a moment was inside their mouth and then was, in essence, spat out by the sperm whale. That's about as close as you're ever going to get. Any more than that, and you're dead and nobody hears the story, okay? That's as close as it gets. 
But you get this idea of this gigantic sea creature with kind of almost Lovecraftian description of like almost an unknowable body or size, but lots of tentacles, tearing down ships and things like that. We The classic name for this creature is the Kraken, which the first time that's actually used is in 1700, so I've jumped forwards a fair bit of time there, by Francesco Negri. I think you can guess that he's Italian, again, Mediterranean. But in a way, there's been this discussion of could any of this stuff exist? We talk about, I'm going to use this term, cryptids. I might do a whole episode on them. Cryptids are unproven creatures. So something like the Yeti or the Loch Ness Monster, okay? I'm not going to say any more than that because I feel an episode coming on with the world of the unexplained creatures there, but pointing out that this is not necessary. This, their stories are legendary and it tells you something about historical societies, but they are not history in and of themselves. I feel obliged to say that. I'm not going off brand here, people, okay? But you then get this idea of the Kraken and it's like, well, how big can a, we know octopuses exist? We know squids exist. Some are bigger than others. How big do these things get? Because if you are talking about a land-based creature like Bigfoot or the Yeti, well, I mean, there's only so many places these things can hide, and surely we should have bumped into them by now. But when it comes to the seas, well, we aren't looking under the sea all the time. One of the most amazing facts I ever got from David Attenborough with Blue Planet, where he talks about the huge migration of creatures from the deep sea up not to the surface, but towards the top end of the sea, which happens every single day. Basically, when the when the sun goes down, there's a change in sort of currents and things like this, and you just get this colossal surge. And it's the biggest migration of animals in terms of weight and numbers in the world anywhere. Because the, this is the great thing about being in the sea. It's three-dimensional. For the record, this is why you don't get something like a great white shark ever being kept in captivity. Why not? Whereas you can do something like a killer whale. But killer whales quite often swim towards the coast. In other words, they get the concept of edges. They know there are places where they can't swim and that's not good. And so they will swim within the pool. Now we can argue about whether that's cruel or not. That's a different story. But when it comes to sharks, particularly the great whites, they are deep water creatures, so they're not used to edges, basically. And so every time a great white has been put in an aquarium, it basically smashes its head again and again against the walls. It doesn't understand what it's doing, and they get very sick very quickly, and they die. So basically all aquariums have given up doing it, and I'm going to say that's a good thing. You know, little fishes in an aquarium, no trouble with that. But once we start getting to very large mammals, like a killer whale, it becomes a lot harder to start justifying, and indeed there's this whole thing about arguments about SeaWorld and all that kind of stuff. But I am going to talk to you about malacology and the Archaeotuthis ducks. Now, the Archaeotuthis ducks may sound like some strange carnivorous duck, but actually that is the Latin name for the giant squid and malacology is the study of squids. And so what's interesting is we have now found, it is now scientific record that we found krakens, basically. But we've given them a scientific name and we realize they're not monsters, they're just creatures that live in the oceans. And the two places 
that they keep washing up on the shore. I mean, I'm not saying every year or anything like that, but, you know, once in a blue moon, you it is Newfoundland, which is northeast Canada, so that's one end of the planet, and New Zealand, I said we'd get back to New Zealand, and we have now. So, New Zealand uh, on the coast and Newfoundland on the coast, every now and then, a giant squid washes up, and we can start measuring them. And the thing is, the problem with deep-sea creatures is they're very hard to observe, uh, very hard to find, because you're not just looking, if you like, north, south, east, or west, but you're also looking up and down as well, and they move pretty quickly, and we don't have a lot of cameras down there. So th there very little is known about some of these massive creatures. And the thing about the... Well, obviously, we're talking about the animal kingdom, so it'll please everybody that the females are the larger and generally considered the more aggressive of the two. To give you an idea, you get the giant squid females ranging up to about 13 meters long. That's about 43 feet. That's big, okay? Can that bring down an entire galley? No, it can't. But you get a couple of those tentacles slapping on the side of the ship and you're going to assume that what's there is absolutely colossal and could drag you down and this explains why they usually they've been beaten off by the sailors etc also they're not really looking to take down a ship it's not really what they eat but what's interesting is you've got the giant squid which is the largest in terms of length and then you've got the colossal squid which is more like 10 meters so it is significantly shorter than the giant squid but the thing about the giant squid is most of it is tentacle it's all legs baby but on the colossal squid it's largely more body so basically it's shorter thicker stockier and it's therefore considered potentially more dangerous than the giant squids the reality is you come across either of these things in the water and it fancies eating you you're done there is literally nothing you can do as a human being in the water to stop that thing from eating you. The suckers will absolutely suck onto you. There's no way you'll be able to break free. You simply do not have the strength to do so. I don't care if you're Dwayne the Rock Johnson. It's game over and you'll be dragged towards the beak and you'll be basically torn into chunks and it will then eat you. What's amazing, and this is one of the sort of like the great sights of the animal kingdom that we have yet to see, is we have seen, going back to sperm whales again, the thing about something like the blue whale is it's a krill feeder. Basically, its teeth act like plates which sieve out the water and put in all the krill and shrimp. They are gentle giants. Same thing with the whale shark as well. But sperm whales have teeth, and they clearly hunt, and they seem to hunt giant squid. And some sperm whale we have seen with like sucker damage and various gouges, which have probably come from giant squid or colossal squid. And therefore, in the deep, dark depths, monsters are literally fighting. Probably right now at the time of recording and listening, you have a giant squid locked in a death struggle with a sperm whale. Will they release their ink sac and shoot off and the sperm whale's got no idea which direction they're going to? Or does the sperm whale tear the giant squid to pieces and have its food that evening? I mean, it's a chilling and, and fascinating idea, and it shows you how these things that have been around in human society for two and a half thousand years 
are still a thing of fascination in the 21st century. And even with all our technology, in some ways, they're just as mysterious as they were to Aristotle. That's it from me, and as always, another episode coming soon.